0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of
1: fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over, it's time to live. I'm investing in memories, I'm investing in family, I'm investing in my community. We have you know, 300 people, our clients at our home every year to celebrate the business that they've been a part of. What caused the problem in 2007 wasn't necessarily the market. It was not watching what was going on around us and not being prepared for it. You can use the opportunity of the losses that you had In order to impact other people and help them, what somebody might be going through right now, somebody else might be going through worse or less, and they need that encouragement.
0: Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great Fit. This year we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Steve Valentine. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Steve D, like David, Valentine. I don't know what his middle initial is, but I'm going to make it up. Steve D. Valentine. So who's Steve? Steve. Steve is a third generation real estate investor. He has had some high highs. And he's had some low lows in the world of real estate investing. So I decided with Steve that rather than talking about all his successes, we would take a vertical dive into the lows because that's where all the lessons are. When you can't feed your family and you have to figure out how to do it, you become resourceful. And we went into situations like that and many others in this uh, episode. He was incredibly honest about how he had to pull himself out out of a ton of debt and turn his mental focus around. As they say, you see the glory, but you don't know the whole story. We went deep on this one and I think you're going to get a ton out of it. Before we get into the episode, a lot of people have been asking me about private coaching. I'm working with a select few people that are now ready to make a change. Not thinking about it, ready if you fall into that category go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com and fill out an application and we'll jump on a call all right please enjoy this conversation with steve valentine steve welcome to the show what's happening my friend I am beyond freaking excited that you're here. I'm going to do the best I can to be a professional. I hate when I have a friend on the show because it just all goes to hell in a handbasket. But we are going to give it a shot. So in the intro, I've talked um, a bit about that of work that you do and real estate, etc. So the audience is pretty familiar with your background. So it gives us an opportunity to kind of dive in a little bit. And I think a great jumping off point would be to talk about, honestly, when was real estate not in your life? I mean, from your grandmother Essie to your parents to your wife, it's in your blood. Has there ever been a time when you remember not having real estate in your life?
1: Yeah. When I was a kid, I had no desire to do anything that my parents were doing. I didn't want to work as hard as they did. I didn't want any of that. And actually, in high school, I started building trucks and got into the automotive field. And that's actually where I went after high school. I worked at a bunch of automotive shops. And um, one day, God blessed me with somebody stealing all my tools and I went to work for my dad.
0: Someone stole your tools. And why was it that that was the thing that sent you over the edge. Why did you just not go out and get some more tools? Was it? Did you look at it like you know as divine intervention that you know if my tools are gone, obviously I'm not supposed to be in the car business, or
1: what was it? You know it was really just it was an opportunity to look around and go, okay, the debt and the money that I'd put in in the investment into the automotive business, I just got a check to get out of it. And, you know, I was rolling around on a creeper, which is a little rolly thing, you know, on a hot pavement in August and just kind of looked and said, do I really want to do this the rest of my life?
0: Why do you think that you resisted the family, quote unquote, business? Was it just the obvious that you just wanted to rebel in your own way or did you just feel like you wouldn't be good at it or what was it?
1: You know, I always had a passion for vehicles, for automotive, for fast cars, big trucks, and building them and get creative with them. And it was fun when I started it. And I enjoyed it. But then when it became a job and it was something that I had to do day in, day out, it wasn't enjoyable anymore. And I just thought maybe there was more to life and seeing what my mom and dad were doing and uh, trying to take that opportunity and see if there was a different path I could go. All right, well, let's talk about your dad
0: because I know that your dad was a big reason why you're in this industry. Mm -hmm. What is the major lesson that you learned from him that is still fueling you today?
1: Nothing comes without hard work. Hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. So he, but he did real
0: estate differently than the way you do it, yeah? Correct. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between how he approached it and what lessons you learned in you know that regard for how you want to do things a bit differently.
1: So real estate's one of those things that it's a it's a relationship business. And my dad being in the business 40 years, lived through 18% interest rates, lived through all the crazy crisis times, and every time he reinvented himself. You had to get creative, you had to figure things out. And so That was one of the things that he really left me was the creative side of real estate. And real estate can be looked at a bunch of different ways. And it's a way that you can solve a problem by looking at it or hovering it from 30,000 feet, because not everything has to be done the same exact way.
0: He sort of had a, a different way of approaching it. But you know, as with most industries, there's a boom and a bust, and your dad certainly has lived through many of those. Mm -hmm. And we're never fully prepared if we haven't seen those booms and busts before. And I know that you have been a part of it. Can you maybe talk about some of the lessons that you learned um, in and around 2007 when the walls literally crumbling down around you and perhaps how you would do or how you are doing things differently now?
1: You know, it's it's interesting. You know, before my dad passed, he told me he says, you know, you've seen what most people have not seen or will ever see, and that's the market shift in that twenty years from it peaking and spiking to it dropping to it starting to come back to the foreclosure crisis to where we're at at a more stable market again. And so, when I look back at the the lessons learned as far as what caused the problem in two thousand seven, wasn't necessarily The market, it was not watching what was going on around us and not being prepared for it, and also taking our eye off the ball. You know, I I remember the first time my dad said, "Hey, I think we should, you know, start a painting company." And it's just a couple of guys in a van. Well, 2007 comes around. We had seven different construction companies, and we had taken our eye off the ball of real estate. So we were we were working and managing all these pieces of the industry that weren't our real bread and butter and it caused us to not see what was actually happening in the market. And so now you look at things and you know part of the courses and things that I teach real estate agents is how to always be prepared for any market no matter what it's doing. Because right now yes the market's been good and we've been blessed with a good market, but what's the preparation which a lot of people talk about what happens if another bubble happens? Well I can tell you right now that I'm going to be working and helping more people to understand the investment side. And that's one of the reasons that I got so involved in the wealth building aspect is that, you know I want people to be prepared for opportunities when they happen, not look back at the opportunities that they regret not being able to take advantage of when they did happen or when they did occur.
0: All right, so speaking of those times when they did occur, you, you had a point where you were a million bucks in debt. And I guess the question is, how did you get yourself out of that debt? And more to the point, how did you get over the emotions that are associated with that feeling of hopelessness?
1: Well, that, that was a rough two years. That, that 2006 to 2008, you know, to answer that question, it, it had to do with hard work, but it also had to do with learning from the lessons that happened. And making sure that we did right by the people, because that million dollars was also some personal debt to people that had invested in us. And, you know, my wife and I just agreed we wouldn't file bankruptcy. We'd do the right thing and we'd put our heads down and we would grind it out. And we, (laughs) I remember doing sprinkler repairs and, you know, trying to do anything I could, including hiding cars every other month until we could figure out how to make it. And it was, Hard work. You know, we talked about earlier, you know, what gets you there? Well, that time was really about hard work. And, you know, the thing that caused me to really, really dig in was December 2007, watching my wife walk out the door and going to wait tables. And I'm sitting with my two toddlers, and I was a, a failure of a man at the time. But my only choice was not to wallow in it. It was to you know pull up my bootstraps and go to work and start figuring it out. What do I need to do if it's 16 hours a day, whatever it is? And then 2008, we were given, and, and I think that this is probably the biggest thing is that we were given an opportunity. There was an opportunity in front of us that our broker gave us to work what we call the REO business or the foreclosure business our brokerage at the time had an account with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And there was an issue with it. And she called and she says, do you have $10,000 and do you want this? And I'm like, yes and yes. I did not know where I was going to get 10 grand. But you say yes and figure it out later. And that was my opportunity. That was my step up, grind it out, figure it out. Nobody really knew what was going on with the account. And I just went balls to the wall. 100% on this. And it was our way out of debt. So that that time frame from 2008, 2012, we'd actually paid off all that million dollars of debt, including our tax liabilities and some of the other stuff. We grew our business. And it it was just hard work and knowing that I never want to lose this opportunity. So I'm going to do everything that it takes to hold on to it and be the best at it that I can.
0: All right, so there's a, there's a lot of people that are listening that you know have a dirty little secret that they're not sharing. They have a piece of their life that is that they feel shameful about, and uh, maybe a little bit embarrassed, and maybe because of a downturn in their own business, or maybe a downturn, maybe they took a stab at investing in real estate, but one thing led to another. They're in debt, and maybe now they're living in an apartment. They have some tax challenges, like what you were just talking about, et cetera. And they're now starting to quote unquote accept it as their new identity. And they're like, this is just the way it is. You know, I fucked up and I got to live with it. What advice would you give them? Let's get into, you know, out of mindset a little bit, because clearly it's, you know, you got to do the work, but let's, let's give them something, you know, that's more tactical. What if the person has bad credit, not a lot of money in the bank, tax situations, but believes they're listening to you, they're following you on social, and they're like, this guy looks like he's got the world by the balls here. I mean, like he's he's got a life he loves, he's flipping houses, he's buying new ones, he's making money, he's got a team. What advice would you give them to just Start with the first one, the first thing, the first rehab, the first investment, the first foreclosure. What does that conversation look like with the mortgage person? Where, where you know they're afraid to even call the
1: mortgage person because of their situation. How do you help those guys? It's putting one foot in front of the other and making a plan. You, know, you talk about goals and you talk about mindset, and so let's start with the little things. It's it's funny, is that you know. We listened to Dave Ramsey a lot when we were going through those times. And there's a lot of people out there that, that have listened to Dave Ramsey and the snowball effect, s- snowball effect of paying the smallest things off first and creating victory, which is taking the small steps. Rob, I had a spreadsheet that was three pages long of all the people I owed money to. You know, Some of the largest debts were American Express at somewhere around $300,000. And we literally put everything on a spreadsheet. And we looked at the smallest thing and we started... I mean, we were making $10 payments to a $140,000 note. It was the little things that got us rolling and as we started being able to take those little steps, it started building confidence and it started just just giving us the ability to not worry about our credit. We ha- we lived in a rental house, we had a couple cars, we knew we weren't going to be able to buy any more cars for a while and it was the little steps and we just started one foot in front of the other. You know, it's uh, $25 here, $10 here. Next month, I might be able to do a little bit more. But we also made sure that we didn't set ourselves up for failure again. You know, setting yourself up for failure would be making agreements that you can't afford or you can't stick to. So we made sure that we were putting some money aside for savings. So we had a little bit of cushion. And we were making sure that we weren't overcommitting ourselves. Even if we were making more money, we stuck to our plan. And we kept going through that process until 2012, everything was paid off and we were able to buy a house again. And it's, it's one of those things, you can use the opportunity of the losses that you had in order to impact other people and help them. What somebody might be going through right now, somebody else might be going through worse. Or less, and they need that encouragement. And I remember, you know, I had a choice in 2008, you know, somebody or 2007, somebody was writing an article and I was nominated for this broker agent magazine. Well, it's supposed to be about everybody's successful business and all this other stuff. I had already done what was happening to everybody else or at the brink of happening to everybody else, which was losing my house to foreclosure, you know, juggling cars, losing all my credit, not having any money. And I chose to take that article and that step and chose to release all the information of all of our failures that had happened. And this is in my industry, it's in my backyard. And so you come out and what ended up happening was the impact that article had, the letters, the emails from people are like, you have no idea how much that encouraged me that it'll be okay. It's emotionally hard at the beginning. But one step at a time, things get better. And guess what? We all can recover from debt. We can all recover from losing it because guess what? There's no debtor's prison. Well, IRS might put you there if you're really bad, but there's no debtor's prison. They can Mm -hmm. call, they can haunt you, they can do all that stuff. But you are the only one that can let you feel bad about the situation. You can't let the creditors and the psychopaths that call you on the phone and beat you down you have to take control over that. And you have to just stay there and stay in that lane in order to come out of it.
0: Okay, but there is... Okay, so the so this the, the step one is, it sounds like the fastest path for somebody would be to get Dave Ramsey's total money makeover, right? Yep. All right, so just begin with that. Follow the steps that he has in there. But then there's some reality. And the reality is... That if the credit, and I'm, I'm, I guess this is in the form of a question. If their credit is bad and they're in debt, they're likely not going to be able to get a mortgage. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Uh, All right. So just to give people, you know, the situation, you know, that you were in, let's say that there's, you know, $100,000 in debt. We'll take a round number $100,000 in debt, some bad credit, some tax situation. What does somebody have to do? to get after they you know follow the uh, the total money makeover what does it need to look like does it need to be you know pristine where it's an 800 score where there's no debt there's no tax situation and you know they've got 20% to put down on the house or, or is there a, a spot that's in the middle where it isn't great but they can begin to start repairing like what what frame of, like what are we looking at before you can take that next
1: step there's a total spot in the middle. I mean, there's, there's loans out there with 600 credit scores with 3% down. And you know they're fairly easy to obtain. The big thing is getting your credit back on track so that you don't have lates on your credit cards. You don't have collections. And that's what took me so long is that there was a lot of collections on my credit. And so mm-hmm. we had to work through those and give it time. And we, here's, here's the hard part. So many people get focused on, well, I I don't own a house right now or I can't buy a house. It's not the end of the world. The reality is, is a lot of people took on debt and bought houses when they shouldn't have back in 2005, 2006, because they had fear of missing out. They were fearful of not getting the house. They were fearful of never being able to buy a house again or afford one again. And the reality is those people ended up going into foreclosure rather than having a plan to get into a house on their time and in something they can afford and that's really what what I've gone back with people and started walking them through the process so that they are set up for success when they do buy a house. And some people, you know, Rob, here's the here's the crazy thing. Homeownership is awesome, but homeownership is also expensive versus renting. I was telling my wife the other day, I'm like, can you imagine how much money we'd still have in our pocket if we were still renting the house that we did for five years? Because we never did anything to it. (laughs) And we've dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars into the house that we have now. But you start looking at it, it was the right time when we got there. But there's so much that can be done. And the big thing is starting... Where do you start? You start by talking to a lender and having them pull your credit. And they have plans. They can give you an exact guideline on these are the things that you need to do to get back on track to home ownership
0: do you have um, is this local per states in other words the people listening that you know are in um, Michigan do they have to find somebody local or can they use um, anybody nationally how does that
1: work so my best advice on that is to find a local mortgage broker rather than the big banks Unfortunately the big banks as far as service goes, They've got certain guidelines they stick to. Sorry for any of those of you that are doing mortgages for the big three. But I just feel like there's a little bit more specialized attention in the lending side. And the best place to get a good referral for a lender that's got great reviews and great performance would be for their local real estate agent who they trust to reach out to them and ask them, who do they use for lending?
0: So you mentioned something a second ago. I want to talk about investments. Uh, I want to talk about rehab investments, and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, fulfillment and your wife uh, in a sec. But the first thing I want to ask you about is what you just mentioned, which is Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone is not a believer in buying real estate for your, for your own home. Yep. For a lot of the reasons why you just mentioned. Because when you add up the amount of money that you dump into it and how much profit you make, you can rent something for less. What's sure. your take on that?
1: You know, I think everybody has the, it depends on what you're buying for or what you're renting for. You know, I understand exactly where he's coming from, but here's the other thing. I can take the two or 300,000 dollars that I say I've invested in my home that we've renovated, but here's the thing: I'm investing in memories. I'm investing in family, I'm investing in my community because I've brought the prices up in the neighborhood, and my wife and I are having memories in that home. We have, you know 300 people, our clients at our home, every year to celebrate the business that they've been a part of. And so for me, you know, and I understand you can rent places and do all those different things. I get it. But, you know, my kids come there, their friends are there. I think every night we have five or six teenagers running around our house. And it's a place for memories for me. And that's why I'm investing in it. There's no price tag for it at the end of the day. And yes, you could do it on the rental side. But here's what happens if you, you know, rent um, where you live. You have no certainty and you have no guarantee. If you look back at the amount of people that thought they had five-year leases on houses back in 2009, and they were paying their rent, and all of a sudden, they get a notice and I get to knock on the door and say, sorry, the house has been foreclosed on. And they look at you and say, well, I've been paying my rent every month. What happened? Well, I don't know. You'd have to talk to your landlord. So there's no certainty. See, I know that I'm the only one that can make my household certain by paying the mortgage. Nobody can take that away from me unless I stop making the mortgage. If you're renting, the landlord could decide to sell. The landlord could stop making payments on it. The landlord could die and the family inherits the house and wants to sell it. So that's, that's my only take on homeownership is that you don't have any certainty and you don't have any guarantee. And I think part of you know, Grant Cardone's message is also the fact that, well, you, know, you also have the uncertainty of the value of the property. You know just like two thousand nine, you know the prices dipped, so now the five hundred thousand dollar house that you had is worth two fifty but guess what? if you can afford the payment, it doesn't matter what it's worth. it only matters what it's worth when you go to sell it so it sounds like you know it's an interesting conversation, right because it
0: sounds like arguments are made on both sides, and at the end of the day, there's not a clear winner. you could argue that you know you can argue the certainty like i don't you know i'm sure that in 2009 there were a bunch of people who got knocked on the door that you know you got to lose your house but that's not the norm right and you could also argue that you could make you know great memories in the house, but you can also argue that somebody can knock on the door and say, "Hey, look, I'm not going to renew your lease. I decided that you know I don't want to, I don't want the headache anymore. I want to get rid of it." So, right. it's a personal decision that you got to make for mm-hmm. where you fall in that line. But but it sounds like from a pure you know look, nothing is ever purely economic. But from a purely economic decision it sounds like um, it's split down the middle and you it's you know there's not a clear winner it's it's an emotional decision
1: right but here's here's the other point in that home ownership is the first and cheapest way to start investing in real estate remember when i said you know a few minutes ago that there's loans that you can get in a 600 fico score with 3% down yeah well if you're going out to buy your first home like i do with my buyers i said hey I want you to realize that we're going out to look at your first home, but this is also your first investment. And if we have the mindset of keeping these homes, it's the cheapest way to enter into it. And because if you're buying it like I do, where you have to put 20-25% down, you have to have a better FICO, you have a lot of cash infused that a lot of people don't have. But if you take a 20-year-old and say, look, if you buy your first house, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be extravagant but it's going to make a great rental property in a year, you have that first investment with 3% down. Now you go to year two and you're going, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next one. Well, now they can go and do the same thing. And that's what my wife and I did early on. And we did really well You know, in that 2000 to 2006 timeframe before the market crash, where we were moving from one house to the next. And we were creating equity. And then we were keeping as rental properties.
0: So while we're there, let's talk about, you know, your wife and your relationship. So, you know, she's definitely the one that wears the tool belt. You're just the one that looks pretty.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, that's obvious. We can, we can see that. What I, let me say what I love looking in from the outside. When I watch your, your social media and it's, it's almost like, I feel like I'm watching a television show. I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm right there with you. So I, I got to, I got to take my hat off to you. You do a, a great job on social of truly being real. Like there's not a lot of bullshit with you, and that's one of the things that I love about you. You just a, you're just an honest, real guy, and that comes through in the work that you do uh, on social. But the question, I suppose, is when I see you and your wife going into you know what I'm going to term a shithole house, what it looks like to me. I'm like, oh my. God, what the hell is he gonna do with that? And then it looks like a completely different house because you guys went in there, flipped it. We talk about you know the amount of money that you made. It's like it's like literally watching a TLC television show. Talk to me a little bit about that side of your life, because I'm a little bit confused about what. What it is that you do with real estate, and maybe the answer is all of it. So, looking in from the outside, I see taking a buyer out to buy a house, like standard real estate stuff, mm-hmm. going into uh, a house and rehabbing it, flipping it, and selling it falls mm-hmm. more into an investment. And then I see teaching real estate agents, for lack of a better word, you know, more effective sales. So, which one of those things are you mostly and which one do you want to be in more out of all three of those if you do
1: oh those are such good questions so uh, let me start at the beginning as to why why I do what I do now you know it's it's sharing a little bit of my dad's story so if you don't mind if I start there is that of course yeah my dad found a niche in the investor side of the business with foreclosures here where he was you know several investors with lots of money and he he bought 890 some odd homes at trustee sale, which is the foreclosure sales here in the valley and he helped people with his creativity and his genius take thirty million dollars and turn it into two hundred million dollars over a five year period of time because of what the market did but here's what he didn't do. He didn't buy anything for himself. Why? At the end of the day, he owned almost, almost nothing because of mindset, because he didn't start asking the questions and he didn't start trying to figure out how to make partnerships with people. He was just working for the dollar, which is typical of the real estate business. We, we get into the business to help people buy and sell homes, but we're never our own client and that frustrated me as you know the last 9 months of my dad's life as I started breaking his business down i'm looking around going you had so much and you missed the opportunity and now you know showing people including doing it for my family is it's so important to understand rob whenever i speak in a room of real estate agents do you know the percentage of real estate agents that invest in their own business
0: I'm going to being completely outside of your profession, I'm going to say 25% of real estate agents own an investment property outside in addition to their home. 5%. Amazing.
1: 5%. I spoke in Vegas a couple of weeks ago, 250 people in the room. And there might have been 10 to 12 people that raised their hand that actually own investment properties. And they may even lied to you. And <laughs> maybe. Do you know what I mean? Like
0: right. because they felt uncomfortable. Well, I mean, like when you're in a room and you know you're with a bunch of other people, and it's like, who owns real estate and you're a real estate agent? I would guarantee you that somebody felt inadequate and
1: raised their hands. Right. So it it started making me realize that not that there's a problem, but there's a lack of education because we're taught to buy and sell. But we're not taught to solve problems and be prepared for opportunities. And so you, you know that's that's kind of what led me to where I'm at because traditionally, you know, we still do a ton of representing buyers and sellers in the Phoenix market and I still love to help my clients and we also work a lot with investors in showing them how to invest and how to run the numbers and what does it look like and what is it going to take and what's the ideal investment opportunity for you because the amount of data that I've gone through over the last five years and said, okay, these are the ideal rental properties and here's why. And then getting into the, the coaching, speaking and doing some courses for real estate agents, it's because I don't want another real estate agent to look back on their 20-year career and look back at all the opportunities that they had to invest in themselves and they didn't take the opportunity, not because it wasn't there, but because they didn't know how.
0: It's so interesting because you know every it's like every industry has got this weird dirty little secret. It's like most chiropractors I know don't go out to a chiropractor and get adjusted, and it's always weird to me. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? Like you spend eight hours a day adjusting people, and you don't like it's weird. <laughs> but I guess you know there's an old saying my mother used to say: "The shoemaker goes without shoes." And there's something about I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the kind of people who find themselves attracted to, you know, they watch a million dollar listing on television and they find mm-hmm. themselves attracted and they're like, hey, I'm going to be a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. But they're just not drinking the Kool-Aid on a deep level and they're missing this opportunity. So I love the fact that you're educating them on something that, strangely enough, they're not getting and you find that people who are not in the real estate business are actually investing more in the real estate business. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your relationship with your wife. She is um, a dynamo. And uh, she's, uh, she's the one that's uh, got the tool belt on and she's the one that's knocking the walls down. Talk to me a little bit about how that came about. I know that she was in the real estate industry and you guys met. But how did you meet when did you discover that she could swing a hammer better than you? And, <laughs> and and what's that relationship like together,
1: you know, working with each other, you know, on on flipping houses? You know, it's it's interesting that uh we met in 99, got married in 2000. I known her 9 months at the time. And um I was actually previously engaged when I met her. And no. yeah. And it was uh, it was certainly a blessing. And she's five years older than I am, so I found somebody that could uh, essentially babysit me because I needed it. <laughs> and um, you know, Wendy was in the restaurant business. She has a degree; she has a culinary degree and hotel restaurant management. She came from Buffalo down to Florida, and then the restaurant she worked at um, moved her out to Phoenix in '96. And how we came across our, each other's paths is my sister was a waitress for her. And um, Mm -hmm. so we met, we got married pretty quick. And she wanted to get out of the restaurant business. It just wasn't conducive to what we wanted to do. So she got a real estate license just after we got married in 2000. And she sold traditional real estate. And then when uh, we started having kids, um, she started doing what we call transaction coordinating, which is basically paper pushing. And she did that. And then um, she did some of the property management stuff. When uh, when the businesses were kind of starting to tank, and then she came home, and we just kind of did some real estate in the background. She got an insurance license for a little while, and then uh, when we got into the bank-owned business, she took on all the accounting side because when you do foreclosure business, you're responsible for paying a lot of expenses up front, and then tracking your money to get it reimbursed by the banks. And there were some times that we had a couple hundred thousand dollars out for reimbursement. So nobody tracks your money better than your wife because mama needs new shoes. And so... Mama needs new shoes. So we learned a lot in the REO business from the construction side of things, the way things flowed. And then in what really brought it about was when my dad got sick, he had a bunch of flips going on and the contractor was terrible and we started uncovering things and so Wendy started looking at things and going no that's not how that is and then she started working with the guys and what was awesome was you get a designer and a contractor that understands both aspects of the house when you get Wendy involved and when she started doing it she just had the eye for it and her you know she came from upstate new york her brothers are all in construction and it just was like a natural progression. And she she found her niche. She found the things she loved. And what's cool is that there's no, there's no ego. She works with a bunch of guys all day long. And she has, you know, she's married to me, so she's got a ton of patience. And she just has created this amazing team and an amazing business around her crews. And she loves them and she treats them with respect. And Either. it's just really made a huge impact on that piece of it. So that's that's how we came about to where we're at now. Do you do you find that that there's a challenge with the two of
0: you guys working together? In other words, you know, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, my wife and I work together in many, many different ways and we, you know, we we're, we're home a lot together. And so, you know, there's a lot of couples that you know are in a situation where they either want to be working together or they are working together. This isn't working out. Has there been an evolution for you guys where you know it wasn't so easy in the beginning, or has it always just been you know what we see on TV with you two lovebirds?
1: We've always made a good team, and we've always picked up the slack, and we've always found different parts of the business to be involved in. It's it's not like we're side by side all day long you know she's managing her business i'm managing mine and they just work really well together and that was the thing that we learned from the downturn was hey i'm not going to have a construction business that i own and then work it into my clients wendy's going to build her own business and i can refer clients to her and it it makes it much... It makes much more sense in that direction. And so she's running her company, I'm running mine, and they just work together. And so yeah, I mean, Rob, we've had an amazing 19 years of marriage. We've certainly had our struggles. But she's also an amazing woman that has... I don't want to say learn not to push my buttons, but she's not a button pusher. She's constantly helping me grow and constantly helping me be better in the spaces that I'm in. And we just found separate spaces in the same industry that gives us a lot of converse about, gives us a lot to talk about and a lot to share with people. What a
0: blessing. It's so, so few people can, can say that. So what a blessing. That's, that's great. All right. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the other side of your life, which is sort of non-real estate. And I want to move into talking about fulfillment. So, when you look at periods in your life where you felt like you were you know, in the zone, however you define that, what are some of the daily or weekly practices that you've spotted in terms of pattern recognition that when you look back on those sweet spots, when you've been really performing at your best really, really well, are there any daily, weekly practices or habits that come to mind that you can identify as consistent?
1: You know, consistency has been... it's It's been a really good practice. I can't say that I'm 100% consistent with it, but journaling every morning, kind of brain dumping, thinking about mm-hmm. what the day was before, what today should look like. It's interesting to go back and read stuff from 2016 and see where you were at. And it kind Is of gives this? you some... It gives you some some markers in life that you can go back and go, oh man, I was a mess that day. But it also yeah. gives you some things too that allow you to understand that, hey, you may have had a problem that day and you worried about it and you let time be stolen from you for fearing or worrying and thinking about how did that problem turn out? Well, it wasn't as big of a deal as you thought. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does give you some mile markers in that. And the other thing too has just been, I think over the last year, year to eight months, uh, the gym has, you know, I got a personal trainer and um, that's really been fulfilling getting into that. And then obviously just the, uh, the practice of church and faith have, uh, have always been a, a staple for us.
0: Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it can even be way back, it uh, doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed substantially where you've shifted your position or you completely changed your mind, where you were like, you know, back then I used to think this way, but now I just don't, I don't, I don't think that way anymore. I think this way. Is there anything that comes to mind in that area for
1: you? Yeah, there's one one particular thing which was authenticity. You know, when when I first got into the business, my dad was always big in being a chameleon. You know, I remember the first time my dad told me that uh, the tattoo I had. He says, "You better hope that rubs off." You know, he was always one of those people like you have to be who that person wants you to be rather than being who you are and being authentic with those people. And I also learned mm. that, you know, being in this business, being authentic builds true relationships rather than fictitious relationships that don't stand all the time. Somebody knows if they meet me, I'm going to my next appointment and my t shirt and my chucks and my jeans, they know they're going to see me that same way no matter where they see me. It's not one persona and then seeing another one. What you see on Facebook is what you're going to get in person. It's trying to make sure that I'm not being that that person on and off camera at the end of the day.
0: Mm, Such a great answer. You know, we hold our parents in such high regard, but we forget that they're just people. You know, and they had they had their own parents, and you know, they're just they're 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 teaching what they believe was right. Based on what they saw. And so sometimes it's okay to say, you well, know, I'm gonna take that, but I'm not gonna take that. That's right. good. Yep. Um, if you could spend one month anywhere in the world,
1: where would it be and why? Ooh. I'd go spend it in Greece with you. Nah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, it's beautiful. I'm actually booking it as we speak. I'm sure. If you could if you could only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Ooh.
1: Uh Fleming
0: Steakhouse. Mm. Steakhouse is a very popular one. Not that particular one, but that's a steak people love people want to go out with a steak. Yep. <laughs> what's um, What's the one thing that's rocking your world now that has absolutely nothing to do with real estate?
1: Teenagers. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like you actually it looks like you're having a lot of fun. Oh, uh, we're having a blast. Yeah, I see that.
0: What is the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just have not gotten around to yet? Spanish. Mm, That's a popular one too. Is it? Yeah, that's a popular one. It's really interesting. Okay, we're going to move into the last section of the show, which is the rapid fire round. answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically the first thing that comes to mind round. Are you sure you want that? (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) do. What would your friends... Say, is one of your superpowers? Creativity. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Heights. What keeps you up at night?
1: Money. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Why do you do real estate differently?
0: What's the one thing that you want to get better at in your life personally? Uh,
1: Time management. What book have you reread the most? Probably "Building a Story Brand" by Donald Miller. <laughs> such a good book. What's your guilty pleasure? Drinking. What
0: is one question that you would like to ask me?
1: How do you have such great hair? It's it's there's three different products, but the,
0: but the way that they're mixed together is the secret. We're going to have to do, we have to do a hair off. I'll do it when I see you in LA.
1: Well, let's do it in LA and you can show me what I need to put in my goatee to make my hair look as good. My hair <laughs> as my hair.
0: Steve, this was absolutely what I hoped it was going to be. And it was amazing. Do you have any final words, suggestions or an ask for the people that are
1: listening? Follow on social Steve D Valentine on Instagram, Steve Valentine on Facebook and, uh, I think the one big thing is really that people should look at and understand uh, the power of real estate and the power of time with real estate and what it does offer for their long-term investments and their long-term passive income goals.
0: Well, we are going to... uh, I'm going to dip my foot into that pond when I come out west. I'll be a little closer to you. We'll be in LA in a few months um, after we... uh, Take our little uh, European uh, tour here this summer, um, and uh, I think uh, I think twenty twenty is going to be about doing some real estate investing. So you're going to be the guy I'm going to lean on.
1: Can't wait to talk to you about it. Show you what it's all about. All right, dude. Well, thank you again for everything. Thanks,
0: Rob. Appreciate it. All right, thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game